morning. Our scripture reading this morning is found in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. You'll find that on page 1196 in your pew Bible. Excuse me. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard, regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness with which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Darcy. Uh, boys and girls who are registered for Story Keepers can head out to Story Keepers now. And as the kids are heading out, let me, uh, let me lead us in prayer as we think about the passage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's a familiar passage to many of us, but we want to come to it with fresh eyes to receive fresh encouragement for every day. Indeed, we need your strength, your encouragement, your grace, and your mercy. Uh, so we come confidently because you have assured us that as we open up the pages of the Bible, that we are hearing the God of this universe speak to us. So speak to us now, uh, no matter what kind of week we've had, no matter what, where we are in our journey of faith, that we would hear the living God speak to us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were to browse through the book titles on, on Christian living and discipleship, uh, 
on Amazon or Barnes & Noble website or elsewhere, it's not hard to come across titles like the following, The Transformed Life, The Radical Christian Life, The Purpose Driven Life, Dare to Live Greatly, The Courage to Live a Powerful Christian Life, Heroism and the Christian Life. And none of those are necessarily bad or unhelpful. Indeed, in many ways, they can encourage us to aspire to be uh, more godly, faith-filled, loving, gracious followers of the Lord Jesus, which, of course, is, a, is an excellent thing. But if we're honest, there are plenty of mornings when you and I wake up and the last thing on our mind is how to be a heroic Christian that day or radical or powerful. The first prayer of our day on many days to God is simply, Lord, help me get through this day. Help me keep going. Help me persevere in faith. And if that's the gist of our prayers more days than not, then what we perhaps need more than books on the radical Christian life or the heroic Christian life or the powerful Christian life is just help with the normal Christian life. The 20th century uh, Chinese church leader Watchman Nee actually wrote a book of that title, but 20 centuries before Watchman Nee, the preacher to the Hebrews, without using that title, essentially gave us the blueprint of the normal Christian life in our passage today that Darcy just read for us. And the passage is particularly helpful for us because it recognizes what any genuine follower of the Lord Jesus suspects is true, even if we're hesitant to admit it at times, and that is that suffering is the norm for the normal Christian life. And that suffering can take many different forms. It can be physical, it can be psychological, it can be relational, it can be spiritual. Some of you I know are going through such suffering right now. Others of us perhaps are coming out of such a season. Some of us without knowing it are perhaps about to enter into such a season. So we've noted through the book of Hebrews, the preacher was addressing Christians in this book who were dealing with significant sufferings and trials in their lives. And then as a result, some of them were sorely tempted just to give up, to pack it all in. As we're going to see in our passage today, the preacher wants them and us to realize that the normal Christian life was never meant to be easy, but that we actually do have all the resources we need to make it to the finish line. So here's how we're going to look at those resources this morning that God has given to us. Uh, we're going to see that the normal Christian life requires us to do three things. First of all, keep looking to Jesus. Secondly, keep trusting the Father. And thirdly, keep running the race. So first of all, the normal Christian life requires us to keep looking to Jesus. Look again at verses 1 to 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, the pastor here picks up the pace from the nomadic trek of faith in search of a better country we saw last week in chapter 11 to now, at the start of chapter 12, running a long-distance race to the finish line. There's a, almost this heightened sense of urgency now, and the preacher includes himself in, in the exhortation. Uh, so he exclaims, let us lay aside every weight, 
and sin which clings so closely and, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We're running this race together, he's saying. But our company isn't just the other runners around us. As we run, he says, we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. The preacher almost helps us, wants to help us with our, our mind's eye. Imagine the crowded tiers of an amphitheater, just like the Colosseums of the Greco-Roman athletic competitions. And he says, think of yourselves as runners in the Colosseum, surrounded by this cheering crowd, this, this great cloud of witnesses. And who's in the great cloud of witnesses? Well, it's all the saints that he's just run through in chapter 11. So that sitting in the crowd are Noah and Moses and Abraham and Samson and Sarah and Rahab and all the others. But here's the interesting thing. Unlike normal athletic competitions, these fans are not so much there to see the runners, but so that we, the runners, would see them. The crowd isn't there to watch us. It's for us to watch them as we run. They're there to be seen, not to see. So this isn't a picture of the saints looking down from heaven watching us. No, we're to be watching them as a reminder that as tough as the race of the normal Christian life is, it's not impossible, it can be finished, and we're not alone as we run it. If we're going to make it to the finish line in the normal Christian life, the preacher tells us we need to free ourselves from entanglements tells us to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. If you've ever done any sort of running, whether sprint or long distance or anything in between, you'll know that you'll run faster and more efficiently if you've stripped down to the bare essentials. If I was to go for a run after the service today, I'd be well advised to go home and change into shorts and a t-shirt rather than try to run in what I'm currently wearing. And likewise, in the Greco-Roman world of the preacher, the, the common dress was a, a long robe, which you would have to lay aside before running. And he's saying as spiritual runners, we need to also get rid of hindrances to our endurance. So he tells us to lay aside sin that clings so closely to us, or is that the NIV translation puts it, the sin that so easily entangles. It raises the question, what sin in your life and in mine might be seriously hampering our progress in the race? Because disobedience to God is going to wreck your running. You're going to trip and stumble just as the recipients of this sermon were in danger of doing, as, as the Puritan John Owen put it, be killing sin or it will be killing you. But notice, too, that the preacher exhorts us here to actually lay aside every weight. In other words, there are, there are things that are to be set aside in our lives that aren't necessarily sinful. Sometimes, you know, you may see people out running or walking with weights around their ankles or carrying weights in their hands as they, as they move. And those are great things to train with. But once the day of the race comes, you, 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 you leave those aside. You take them off. And so in the race of the normal Christian lives, weights don't have to be sinful to slow you down. They actually could be, in a sense, good things or neutral things. As Christians, we often look at various interests or activities in our lives and we just ask the question, well, is this allowed? Is this permitted for me as a Christian? But here's a much better question to ask. Does this thing actually help me run the Christian race? Does the company that I keep help me run with perseverance? 
or the websites that I religiously look at every day, or the articles that, that I read, or the things that I put into my body. And so you and I should be asking ourselves this week, what are some of the things that might be slowing us down in this race that aren't necessarily sinful, but are slowing us down? The preacher says, you need to lay those aside. You're running for your life right now. So you need to be ruthless with what you get rid of in your life. But as we run, he says, laying aside anything that hinders our progress, encouraged by the cloud of witnesses around us, the preacher says, keep your eyes fixed on the finish line. Without a finish line, a runner can lose focus, can get distracted, can give up. But our finish line is the greatest finish line imaginable because our finish line is a person with a name. It's the Lord Jesus. And the preacher says, you need to look to him, but not in some sort of wayward glance manner. We're to fix our eyes on Jesus, he says. He uses a rare word here that implies this intentional looking away from other people or things that might distract us in order that we can just fix our laser beam gaze on Jesus. It sort of suggests the impossibility of looking in two directions at the one time. So like the archer eyeing a target or an equestrian rider viewing the jump that's coming or a runner focused on the finish line. The believer's eyes are to be fixed on Jesus. Why do we need to do that? Well, the preacher tells us because Jesus isn't just one amongst the many spectators in the stadium seats who have exhibited faith as described in Hebrews 11, he's the founder and perfecter of our faith. Some commentators suggest that one helpful way to interpret those terms is is to understand Jesus as our champion. He's our champion who has stood in our place and fought our battle for us. So as the, the preacher goes on to explain, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. For the joy of our salvation, he went to the cross in our place to pay for our sins so that as our champion, he would win victory for us. You and I often think of the cross in terms of physical pain, but here we're reminded that more than such physical pain, the cross was about the shame of our sin that he bore. And that shame was a twofold shame. First, the cross was a cruel instrument of capital punishment. Jesus didn't die of natural causes, you know, in his sleep or in a boating accident on the Sea of Galilee. He was executed as a criminal, as a menace to human society. Secondly, shame is, is, as all of us know, a human experience connected to public exposure, that when the, the judging eyes of others fix their gaze on us, when we're caught out in the open without the shield of our respectability, naked and unprotected, we, we feel embarrassed and, and ashamed. And as Jesus hung on the cross, he was exposed to the, the pitying, reviling gaze of others, but the shame he bore was not his own shame for his own sin. He was sinless, as the preacher of the Hebrews has been telling us over and over again. It was for our shame for our sin. But he despised that shame. That is, he scorned the shame so that he might provide atonement for our sin, forgiveness for our sin. So that as our champion, he bore the penalty for our guilt and shame in our place so that we might be able to draw near to the living God. So we fix our eyes on Jesus as our champion, 
But our champion, who's also, as we've already seen in Hebrews, and we see again here, our pioneer, that is on the cross, he paved the way for us to follow him. We follow him not only as our champion savior, but also as our example. So look at verses three to four. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So as the preacher calls us to run this race of the normal Christian life with endurance, so he points us to our expedition leader who, who has shown us how to do so. As he endured hostility and persecution and suffering beyond anything that any of us have ever faced. That as we fix our eyes on Jesus at the finish line, we're focusing on the one who is the greatest example of enduring faith as well as the one who has done absolutely everything necessary to secure eternal life. How do we know he's done everything? Because the preacher tells us he's received his reward as he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. One person who, for whom this practice of fixing our eyes on Jesus was of the utmost significance was John Newton, the author of the hymn, Amazing Grace. Newton described the practice as looking unto Jesus. It's one of his favorite phrases. And he wrote about how every step along the path of life is a battle for the Christian to keep two eyes fixed on Jesus. Indeed, he actually said for him it was actually the hardest thing about being a Christian because of the thousands of distractions in our lives which constantly want our attention. And yet he fought hard to keep his eyes on Christ because, as he said, Looking to Jesus marks the beginning of the Christian life. Looking to Jesus marks the end goal of the Christian life. And looking to Jesus is the daily privilege of the Christian life. Newton wrote a hymn based on these opening verses of Hebrews 12, which we're going to sing after the sermon. And verse 2 goes like this. But since the Savior I have known, my rules are all reduced to one, to keep my Lord by faith in view. This strength supplies and motives too. The normal Christian life requires us to keep looking to Jesus. But secondly, the normal Christian life requires us to keep trusting the Father. So look at this uh, somewhat long section from verses 5 to 11. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. End quote. The preacher here changes his metaphor because while he's a preacher, he's also a pastor. And he knows that when you're in the middle of your sufferings, you need more than just God as your coach who's encouraging endurance in the race. You also need to experience God as your loving Heavenly Father. And as the preacher explains here, 
you need to understand that when troubles come into your life, it's part of God's fatherly care. And the way he does that here is what Jeremy and I seek to do every Sunday. He takes a passage and he explains it and applies it to their lives. In this case, his passage is from Proverbs 3 in the Old Testament, verses 5 to 6. And his application from the passage is basically this, that God's discipline is a sure sign that you're his children. Now, we do need to hit the pause button for a moment here just to make sure we understand our terms. Because when you and I hear the word discipline in a passage like this, it, it tends to carry the connotation of someone being disciplined for, for something wrong, and therefore we connect it to punishment. And that might seem to fit in Hebrews, because as we've been seeing, these people are considering abandoning their faith to, uh, for something wrong, and, and therefore... Uh, in order to avoid persecution. But the Greek word that's translated here as discipline actually has a, a wide semantic range. And it, it's actually the, from the Greek word paideia, from which we get our word pediatrics. And that starts to give us a clue to the wider meaning of the word, you know, as pediatrics is concerned with the overall health and flourishing of a child. And so the, the New Testament Greek scholar Bill Mounts gives this definition. He says, Paideia is the act of providing guidance for responsible living, providing upbringing, training, and instruction. And that, of course, could include disciplinary action that involves some form of punishment. But the important thing to see here is that punishment is most likely not what is primarily in view here. And here's why. Because if you're a Christian and you're suffering... God is not punishing you. Let me say that again. If you're a Christian and you're suffering, God is not punishing you. How do I know that? I know that because God is a just God and he already punished your sin 2,000 years ago. When Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, endured the cross, despising it, Shane, and took the punishment in your place. So that for God to demand payment now would actually be unjust. It would be asking for the punishment twice for one sin. Well, if God isn't punishing you, then what's he doing? He's training and refining you as a loving father with his child. The preacher takes off here three reasons why we should see such discipline, therefore, as a good thing. First of all, such discipline is a sure sign that we truly are God's children. The only children who are undisciplined are those who are unloved and abandoned. So this kind of discipline is almost like a blood test to demonstrate who's your father, your loving heavenly father. And secondly, we, we should recognize God's pattern from, from the pattern of a healthy, earthly family upbringing. And none of us were, as children, were likely to ever be enthusiastic about appropriate parental control or correction. In fact, it's quite possible, if not likely, that all of us at some stage rebelled against it or were snarky about it or cheeky about it. But looking back, the preacher points out that we can all recognize it was in our best interests. And then third, he says, the end result of God's training is, is worth the pain. The harvest of God's discipline is that, as we see in verses 10 and 11, we share his holiness and we taste the, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. God is training us to make us fit for his heaven, for our true home. And the sufferings and difficulties that God brings, therefore, into your life are his way to bring greatness and glory into your very soul. So just as self-discipline is essential for the training of runners, 
parental discipline is essential for the flourishing of children. Now, let me apply this in a couple of ways before we go to our final point. The first application is this. You and I should not, therefore, be surprised by suffering in your life because it's actually part of the normal Christian life. Anytime you or I go through suffering, a significant amount of our misery comes from anger or surprise that the suffering is actually happening to us. And that anger or surprise reveals itself by questions like, why me or why now? I've read that it's estimated that 50% of the distressed emotions that people experience in suffering is simply the shock that they're suffering at all. That's why a passage like Hebrews 12 is actually so helpful for us. It's not the only passage in the Bible on suffering, and that's, that's important to note. You know, the Bible's resources on suffering are vast, they're nuanced, they're sensitive. So elsewhere we learn that, you know, suffering is traced back all the way to the fall. We know that God is the great comforter who walks with us through our suffering. That was the theme of our first hymn this morning from, based on Isaiah 41, 43. That all suffering will be gone for every believer in the new heaven and the new earth. All these things come together. But Hebrews 12 has to play a significant role in any biblical theology of Christian suffering. And if you don't have a theology of Christian suffering that's informed by all of Scripture, you are going to be surprised when you suffer. In the midst of the suffering, you're going to be likely to ask the wrong questions or give yourself the wrong answers. You're going to assume that God must have abandoned you or maybe he is punishing you. That you'll be angry or bitter with God. You could get anxious and despondent in your circumstances and therefore re respond irrationally, blaming God or others. Which might even lead to you ultimately rejecting God and the Lord Jesus and the church and, and, and the Christian faith, which was the danger for this congregation whom the preacher was addressing here. And the preacher says, don't think that way or go that way. Don't be surprised when as Christians you face suffering because God is at work in you and through your sufferings to bring you to, your, to himself. See your suffering for what it is. It's not something strange. It's not something out of place. It's a means of training. It's a means of strengthening your faith. That God is at work in our sufferings and through our sufferings as part of the normal Christian life. If we remove God from our suffering, which we're often tempted to do, we're left with cruel, cold, impersonal suffering. But if we can recognize that our suffering is somewhat, somehow in some way coming from God, our loving Heavenly Father, then our grief, the real and painful does not need to be relentless and futile. God's ways may be unfathomable at times in our lives, and surely they are, but his character is not. We know him to be good, wise, loving Heavenly Father, because he's shown himself to be that in the giving of his Son on the cross, so that even when hard things happen, the gospel reminds us that God is at work for our good and for his glory. And the second application point, briefer, but flows out of the first, and it's really this. Don't limit where you look for God to be evident in your life. You know, if you're anything like me, when things go well, I'm the first to say, you know, the Lord was certainly in this. The Lord was certainly in that. And that could be answers to prayers. It could be when loved ones are healed. It could even be when you're driving around looking for a parking place and one suddenly opens up. But what about when God doesn't answer the prayer the way you want him to? Or when he doesn't heal? Or when the parking place doesn't miraculously appear? 
The preacher wants you to say, you know, the Lord is still in this, even when it's frustrating. Verse 11, the preacher refers to God's discipline with the word training. It's the word from which we get our word for gymnasium. That is, in all the hard trials of the normal Christian life, he's gymnasing us. He's developing our muscles of faith so that we can endure the race to the very end. Here's another John Newton quote that many of you have heard me mention before. Newton wrote that such is God's love and power for his people that we can trust that everything is necessary that he sends and nothing can be necessary that he withholds. It's been one of the most helpful truths. Most helpful truths that's carried me through trials of the normal Christian life for many years. Such is God's love and power that we can trust that everything is necessary that He sends, and nothing can be necessary that He withholds. So, the normal Christian life requires us to keep looking to Jesus, keep trusting the Father, and thirdly, and very briefly, to keep running the race. Pick up the final verses of this section next week, but let me just finish with verses 12 to 13. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. I've only ever run one marathon. You might look at me and wonder if I ever could have run any marathon, but it was in In Paris in May 1988, it was a scorching hot day, but I remember as the race approached, just feeling inspired and excited by all the other runners around as we started. It sort of felt like the beginning of Hebrews 12, running with endurance, having stripped off all that would slow me down, and everything was going really well. And then around mile 13, I was a physical wreck. And I walked from mile 13 to mile 20, Not to get into too much detail, but I was violently sick at that point, and then I was able to run the last six miles to cross the finish line. But it's it's the mile 13 to 20 section of the Christian life, the normal Christian life, that the preacher's addressing here in verses 12 to 13. So the preacher draws the imagery of drooping hands and weak knees from Isaiah 35 to say, keep going, don't give up. And the command to make straight paths for your feet refers to just staying on the path, on the track, not being deflected to the left or to the right by by distractions or obstacles you come across. And you and I know how that's easier said than done. So let me bring us back in closing to the beginning of this passage. And I think the most glorious motivation the preacher gives us for keeping going. Look again at verses 1 to 2. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Those of you who are doing the daily prayer project, those lines provided the assurance in response to our confession of sin in the Lent Lent edition of the daily prayer project every Monday evening through the season of Lent, and appropriately so, because the preacher presents Jesus if I may put it this way here, as having done some cost-benefit analysis before his death. That is, in other words, as he anticipated the cross, Jesus basically asked, 
Is this worth it? Is it worth the shameful agony of crucifixion? Even more, is it worth me being cut off from my father for the first time ever in eternity? Because that's the cost. And so the question was, what benefit could possibly have made Jesus willing to bear the cost? What was it that enabled Jesus to endure the cross and to despise its shame? And the preacher says it was for the joy set before him. I wonder if you've ever thought about what that joy specifically was. It wasn't heaven. He already had heaven. And it wasn't the Father. He'd been in a perfect relationship and fellowship with the Father for eternity. So what joy did Jesus not have already that he would gain through the cross? And the answer, of course, is you and me, us. The only thing he didn't have was us in fellowship and communion with him because we'd been cut off from him due to our sin. For Jesus, we were the joy worth bearing the punishment of hell for. And that surely helps us keep running the race with perseverance. That with our eyes fixed on Jesus, we say, Oh Lord Jesus, if I am the joy set before you, And you are the joy set before me, and I will keep running in order to meet you at the finish line. The finish line of the challenging and difficult normal Christian life. The normal Christian life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a generous, good God you are that you do want to train us into your likeness into the likeness of Jesus, training us up in holiness, making us the way we were created to be, and at times that is painful, but that you give us every resource to get us through. You've given us Jesus to keep our eyes fixed on. You've given us your loving care. You give us the endurance to keep running the race for the knowing that the joy that was set before Jesus was to have us. Help us keep going, Lord. No matter what the distractions or the obstacles, help us keep going. For we pray it in Jesus' name, the author and perfecter of our faith, our champion, our pioneer. In his name we pray. Amen.